Romans chapter 2 is where we find ourselves this morning. Getting a little momentum back in Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 2. Paul's been talking about the judgment of God. That was pretty much last week's text. And if you scroll back a little bit further north in Romans 2, he's been talking about how we're all deserving of the wrath of God because we all rebelled against God. That was the the essence of chapter 1. We all rebelled against God because we all knew creation revealed there is a God and we looked at the choice that we had to follow God or to follow not God and we said, not God looks pretty good. We sinned, every last one of us, against an eternal God, which means that we were all destined to be separated eternally from that God, which is why we need Jesus. Jesus who traded places with us at the cross. Jesus who died in our place. That's where Paul's headed in this letter. That's where Paul's going. That's the big idea that's coming. He just hasn't gotten there yet, and he's not going to for a little while. Which is why we just need to pause ourselves every so often and remind ourselves of the really, really, really good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this morning, Paul's got more to say about the wrath of God. He's not done yet. He's got more to say about how we all deserve it, how, apart from Jesus, we're all subject to it. Indeed, verse 17, as we continue where we left off, we are all subject to the wrath of God, indeed, even those who are Jewish. We have a pretty straightforward text this morning, so our outline is going to likewise be pretty straightforward. We're going to look this morning at what Paul has to say to the church in Rome, especially to the people attending the church in Rome who happen to be Jewish. And then we're going to expand from that. We're going to extrapolate from that, and we're going to see what, by extension, Paul has to say to the church in our world Because the church in our world today is confused in much the same way that the Jews in the church of Rome were confused. And then finally, we're going to ask, what does this epistle have to say to you and I here this morning at the church in Wichita? Let's dive in. Romans chapter 2. Paul's writing to the church in Rome. We've talked about this. It's a church he's never been to, but it's a church that he knew included, was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, because that was most churches in Paul's day. And so he's writing to both Jews and Gentiles, Messianic Jews and believing Gentiles. The letter he was writing, he was writing to everyone, because in Christ there's no difference between anyone. We're all the same under the blood, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. Paul has made this point elsewhere. But even with that being true, every once in a while Paul pauses and he directs his comments specifically to one group or another, and this is one of those times this morning. Starting in verse 17, Paul's going to address the the Jewish attendees. I hesitate to say believers because I don't think all of them were. But he's going to address the Jewish, let's say this, believers and make-believers 
in the church in Rome. Those who grew up like he did, worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sacrificing at the temple, observing the law. And he says to them, verse 17, he says to his fellow Israelites, indeed you are called a Jew. He says to them, yeah, I'm talking to you. Why? Where does this come from? Remember, a lot of times it helps if we read Paul's letters as one side of an imaginary dialogue between Paul and his reader. So think back to what Paul said last week. Look back at verse 9, if you will, where he talks about tribulation and anguish coming on every soul of every man who does evil, on the Jew first and also the Greek. That's pretty heavy. And Paul because he's, he's Jewish himself, because he understands the mindset, knows what his Jewish readers in Rome are going to be thinking. He knows how in their hearts they're going to be responding. Tribulation and anguish on the soul of everyone who does evil, the Jew first and the Greek. I mean, not really though, right? I mean, I know that you have to say that, Paul. Theoretically, I suppose it's true, but, but not in actuality. I mean, I get why you have to say it. You don't want to make it seem like God has favorites, but we're really his favorites, Paul. We're God's chosen people. They're thinking perhaps it's a little like when I was coaching basketball. I remember one game, I was just ripping my players because they were, they were phoning it in. They were barely going through the motions. And so at halftime, I told them that they were lazy and they weren't playing defense and they'd forgotten all the plays. And if I could, if I could fire all of them, if I could kick all of them off the squad right then and just pull people out of the stands to finish the game, I would. I was hot. But as, as they went back to play the second half, I grabbed one kid as we're going out of the locker room, and I said, none of that was for you. You're doing great. That was for everybody else. And so, and so Paul is thinking that his readers were thinking of themselves as that one guy. Paul, you had to say that for everybody, but, you know, it, that doesn't really apply to us, does it? We're Jewish. We're, we're, we're grandfathered into heaven, aren't we? Paul's response, indeed, you're called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. And verse 18, you know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident, verse 19, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Those are pretty nice things to say. Paul's saying to this imaginary reader, you're right. You're not pointing at nothing. You are Jewish, and it is a big deal. We are called, because Paul's talking to, to, to fellow Jews, we're called by God to be his special people. God gave us the Ten Commandments. That was verse 17. God gave us the Law and the Prophets. That was verse 18. And, 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 and through all of that, we know God's will. We know the person of God, the character of God. We know, we know God like no one else. God called us out. He took us to a land that he prepared for us. He taught us about himself. He taught us about ourselves. told us right and wrong, good and bad, clean and unclean. And so you're right. We can look at ourselves, verse 19, and say, yes, we are the world's leading experts on the things of God. We can teach others about him because God taught us. 
Just one small problem, Paul says to his reader. Verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? We knew the way that Paul was laying it on thick. There was a but coming. You're good, you're great, you're fantastic. There's just one thing. Maybe, verse 21, before you stand up and teach, you ought to sit in class a little longer yourself. You know what to do. There's no question you know what to do. I can tell because you're willing to tell anybody else what they should do. What they should do and where they should do it and how they should do it and when they should do it. You know, no question, what God is calling you to do. You know what to do. You don't do what you know. Case in point, he says, verse 21, you who preach that a man should not steal, because, you know, you had the Ten Commandments and that, that told us that. Do you steal? The implication being, don't you steal? You do, don't you? You who say do not commit adultery, verse 22, do you commit adultery? Same, same kind of thing. Rhetorical question, right? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? couple ways to read this some people think that he's saying you're robbing god's temple of tithes and offerings you're supposed to be bringing to god but you're keeping them for yourself another way to read it is you're letting idol worshipers worship their idols right down the street from you and you're not doing anything about it you're not talking to them about jesus you're just letting them take in their own tithes and offerings and then under the cover of darkness you're robbing those shrines and you're doing it in the name of jesus and that's not okay. Verse 23, you who make your boast in the law, verse 23, you who say, we're God's chosen people, recipients of his word, keepers of his law, do you? Do you really? Do you actually keep the law? Or, verse 23, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And Paul's obviously telling them, not asking them. And it becomes really clear in verse 24. He's telling them, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Isaiah said so, and it's still true. Paul's telling them the greatest hindrance of the work of God in our day is the same as it was in Isaiah's day. It's the same as it was, by the way, in our day. Hypocrites. Those who make a big deal out of, out of telling people, do what I say, while insisting, ignore what I do. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Paul just laid a big accusation on them. Verses 21 to 24. He just accused them of not being who they claim to be. Now he's going to say the same thing again, but he's going to express it in uniquely Jewish terms. He's referring to, to, to the fact part of keeping the law was circumcision. And you and I, it doesn't register the same way because up until very recently, circumcision in, in our country, in our culture, was just routinely performed in the hospital bef before kids went home. But in biblical times, it was a uniquely Jewish thing. It was one of several practices God gave his people to set them apart, to mark them as his. 
God actually gave the Jewish people circumcision even before he gave them the law back in Genesis 17. Circumcise the boys. To our ears, that's a strange ask. But to the Jews of Paul's day, understand, it was a source of great pride. We are of the circumcision. That was another way of saying we're marked by God. God loves us. As opposed to the pagans who were the uncircumcised. That's how they referred to them. You're hated by God. The only reason God created you was so that you'd end up logged stoking the fires of hell. They really believed that, by the way. Except not exactly, Paul is clarifying. He's telling them circumcision was a ceremony, a ritual, if you will. And it was intended to be an outward sign of what God hoped would be true inwardly in their hearts. An outward sign of an inward reality. And Paul's point, if you're corrupted on the inside, if you're indifferent to God, if you're unconcerned with sin, minor cosmetic surgery is not really going to make a difference. There's a very close analogy for you and I here. There's a very close parallel for the church. What am I thinking of? Baptism is right which, like circumcision, is also a ceremony. It's a testimony. It's a declaration, outwardly, of an inward reality. You can't see the sin of a, of a, of a new believer being washed away. We can't see, not directly, we can't observe the old man being put to death, but that's what baptism testifies to. Sin being washed away, being, being risen up with Christ in newness of life, forgiven. Baptism is a picture of salvation, which is a reminder we need to schedule a baptism for this summer. Baptism is a wonderful picture of salvation, but it doesn't save. It's a testimony of those who are saved, but for those who aren't really serious about God, who haven't repented, who don't care about sin... It's a bath. It's a swim. Verse 26, we'll keep going, but, but let's keep this analogy going also. Verse 26, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? We, 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 we tend to read Jewish this and circumcise that and law the other, and, and our eyes can glaze over. Okay, you're Paul, Paul, you're talking about someone who's not me. And I'm just going to kind of skim until you're, you're back talking about me. But, but, but translate this into the key of baptism and it starts to make sense. Because if you translate this into the key of baptism, the question becomes, if someone confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior, if they believe in their heart and confess with their lips that he is Lord, he died on the cross for their sin, is that person saved? Yes. Does the answer change if they're not baptized? No. Baptism is for others. It's a testimony. It's a witness. Salvation is the transaction that takes place between me and God. Who is our best example of that? Thief on the cross. You might have seen a, a, a little short piece floating around social media a couple weeks ago. That's when I saw it, at least. The, the header was, how does the thief on the cross fit into your theology? 
And it's actually pretty good. How does the thief on the cross fit into your theology? No baptism, no communion, no confirmation, no speaking in tongues, no mission trips, no volunteerism, no church clothes. He couldn't even bend his knees to pray. He didn't say the sinner's prayer and, among other things, he was a thief. Jesus didn't take away his pain, heal his body, smite the scoffers, yet it was that thief who walked into heaven the same hour as Jesus simply by believing. He had nothing more to offer than his belief that Jesus was who he said he was. No spin from brilliant theologians, no ego or arrogance, no shiny light, skinny jeans, crafty words, fog machine, donuts or coffee in the entrance. Just a naked dying man on a cross, unable to even fold his hands to pray. And what that makes me think of is an even more powerful piece that Alistair Begg taught not long ago, entitled, The Man on the Middle Cross Told Me I Could Come. I'm going to dig that up and I'll post it on our Facebook page. It's wonderful. Verse 27, let's go with this metaphor, this analogy. Paul goes on to ask, what if that uncircumcised person, that unbaptized person, doesn't die but hangs around in your fellowship? Will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Isn't it possible that that new, on fire but unbaptized believer, forgiven of their sin and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, might have something to say to the regular churchgoer, the person who takes communion every week and teaches children's church twice, twice a month. Doesn't that unbaptized new believer have the standing to say to the churchgoer, are you sure you're saved? Because the things you're doing... The way you're talking, the tone that you're taking, the way that you're just, you know, not caring. I'm not really seeing fruit of the Spirit here. Getting a lot of moralism off of you. Deep conservatism, great patriotism, not a whole lot of love. Even if someone is not baptized, do they have the standing to do that? Sure they do. Even if someone's not circumcised, Paul's point, they still might be righteous in the eyes of God because our righteousness is not a function of ceremony or ritual. Our righteousness has everything to do with the condition of our heart. It's, he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, verse 28, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not for men, but from God. Our relationship with God, Paul is underlining here, is not about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation. Our relationship with God is not about changing behavior. It's about letting God change our hearts. And yeah, over time, that heart change will translate into behavior change, but never the other way around. 
Those of you who have taken our biblical counseling class, you remember Paul Tripp talking about fruit stapling. And, 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 and the idea is pretty simple. You can take apples and pears and bananas and, and try to staple them to the trunk of a tree or to the branches of a tree, and they'll look great for a little while. But what's going to happen pretty quick? They're going to rot and get putrid, and they're going to start to smell. That's what behavior change is apart from the initiation of the Holy Spirit. If we abide in the vine, fruit happens. If our heart is filled and overflowing with the Spirit of Christ, the fragrance of Christ happens. Love happens. If we just look around and say, well, this is what Christians do, we can fake it for a little while, but before long, it's going to stink. Paul's point speaking to his fellow Israelites, our Jewish ancestry and everything that comes with it, the trappings of Judaism like the law and the temple and circumcision, they can't save us. And why would we think that they could? The purpose of the law was to prove we can't keep the law. The purpose of the law and all of the rest of it was to prove to us beyond a shadow of a doubt we need to be saved. Judaism does not save. Jesus saves. Jesus saves who? John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him would not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes on him. Jesus saves, listen, Jesus saves those who want to be saved, those who confess they need to be saved, those who repent of their sin and ask for forgiveness so they can be saved. Now here's the thing. The world is full of people who deny that. And not just out there. The church is filled with people who deny that. There, there are people out there who deny that Jesus lived, died, rose, everything about him. Didn't happen. But there are those in the church who don't believe that repenting of sin and asking for forgiveness and choosing to follow Jesus are necessary for salvation. This is the second bullet point on our outline. We've been talking about what Paul has to say to the Jews in the church at Rome, but now let's extend it to the church, and specifically to a segment of the church that is bought into a false teaching called universalism. Not Unitarian universalism, which is hardcore agnosticism, borderline atheism. No, I'm talking about Christian universalism. You've probably run into it at some point, you just didn't have a label for it. But it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the idea that Jesus lived, died, rose from the dead, not so people could be saved, but so that everyone, absolutely everyone, would be saved, whether they repent or not, whether they believe or not. And it, just like Paul's, here's the connection, just like Paul's imaginary reader asks, isn't it enough to be Jewish? The universalist asks, isn't it enough to be born into a world that Jesus died for? I mean, he's willing that none shall perish. 
He died for the sins of all. All means all. That means all must be saved. That's what the Bible says. A universalist will insist. It's a biblical view. Because look at all the verses that tell us that. Colossians 1.19 It pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself by him, Jesus. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. See there, the Bible says it. Jesus reconciled all things to himself. All means all. All people will ultimately be saved. Is that what the Bible teaches? Not even a little bit. Yeah, the Bible teaches God's mercy, and praise God that it does or we wouldn't be standing. The Bible teaches God's mercy, but, mercy, but it also teaches God's wrath. If we're going to talk about God's mercy, at some point we have to get to the subject of God's wrath. Otherwise, what do we need mercy from? Early church fathers would have laughed at the idea of universal salvation, except no one dared even think of it. It never came up. It didn't come up for more than 200 years after Jesus. Not surprising, considered it's not remotely what Jesus taught. And when the idea first does pop up in the third century, it doesn't get much traction at all. In fact, what it sparked was almost universal opposition. Church leaders railed against it. Augustine spent a good chunk of City of God attacking it. The church councils that met from time to time denounced it. Creeds all the way through the 17th century, up to and including the Westminster Confession, rejected it explicitly, all for good reason. The Bible doesn't teach it. What the Bible teaches again and again is the reality of judgment on those who refuse to accept Christ's sacrifice. But then we get to the 18th, 19th century, the age of reason, when people look for reasons to question everything. And they do, and their questions beget questions, and their doubts beget doubts, until we get to the middle of the 20th century when people just start believing what they want to believe, because why not? One philosopher wrote in the middle of the 20th century, it's gotten so hell is neither so certain nor so hot as it used to be. <laughs> and the trend has continued. Did you see the new Barna report last month? Scary stuff. Barna is a church research group. They, they keep their finger on the pulse of what's happening in the body of Christ or those claiming to be the body of Christ. Their latest report shows that only 37% of pastors have a biblical worldview, which means almost two out of three pastors are preaching something other than what the Bible teaches. But it gets worse. That's 37% of all pastors. Only 12% of youth pastors and children's pastors. Barely one in 10 have a biblical worldview. We've said for centuries that the church is always one generation from extinction. I don't think that's ever been truer than it is right now. And one element of that biblical worldview, not the only one, but a big one, is what people believe about sin and salvation. Universalism has a grip on the church. 
even if people don't think of it that way, even if they don't call it by that name, you've heard the argument, I'm sure. What, what's the number one reason that people calling themselves Christians are inclined towards this universalist perspective? What's the number one reason they reject the Bible's clear teaching about hell and judgment? God is love. That's the number one reason. I don't think anybody knows what number two is. God is love. How can a loving God send someone to hell? And we've talked about this before. We, we devoted a big chunk of a message a few weeks ago to this. But the short answer, just by way of reminder, God is love. But he's more than love. And we can't look at, stare at, focus on one attribute of God and allow it to eclipse everything else that he is. A good place to go to illustrate this is Psalm 136. You don't have to turn there because you know Psalm 136, even if you don't know that you know it. If I say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, you say, his mercy, his love endures forever. I told you that you knew it. That's Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for this or for that, and the response, his love, his mercy endures forever, 26 times. And it starts off the way that you would think that it would start off. Starts, it's, you know, starts off saying things like, To him who alone does great wonders, his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, his mercy, his love endures forever. But you get to the middle of the psalm and you come across things like, To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, his love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, verse 17, his love endures forever. The attributes of God side by side, not in conflict with one another, but coexisting with one another. God's love is real, but so is his holiness and his justice and his wrath. Yeah, in his love, God sent Jesus to give us a choice, to die, to make it possible for us to have a choice. Do we want to face God in the wrath that we deserve or in the grace that we so very much don't deserve? Jesus came to give us a choice, but he didn't come to make the choice for us. Let me say that again. Jesus didn't come to make that choice for us. He came to make the choice possible. The choice that we enjoy because of the cross. The choice to face God in his wrath or in his mercy. But Jesus is love, argues the universalist. You know you're on the right side of a debate when someone doesn't respond to your point, they just keep repeating their point. <laughs> Jesus is love. And Jesus, look, look at another verse. Look at 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. Jesus desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus desires all people to be saved. That's true. What's the context of the verse? Yeah, the, the, the text without context is just a pretext. What's Paul talking about in 1 Timothy 2? He's talking about prayer. You can track it down on your own, but he's talking about prayer. He's telling us, pray for everyone. Pray for authorities. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for the wicked, because there's no one, no matter how wicked, God isn't willing to save. There's no one, no matter how evil, God won't save if they repent and trust in God. That's the context. 
Jesus desires everyone to be saved. Pray for them. But it's Jesus. I don't care what, this, what the Bible says. Jesus is God. So if Jesus wants it, he gets it, right? I mean, that's part of being God. If Jesus desires someone to be saved, they're going to be saved, right? It's pretty much automatic. Always be careful when someone tries to use what the Bible says to disprove what the Bible says. Yeah, Jesus is love. Jesus is God. But here's the thing. How do we know that? From Jesus. Most of what we know about Jesus, we learn from Jesus, from the things that he does, from the things that he says. And yeah, he said he was God. And he taught us love. But what else did Jesus say? Just in the parables, if we confine ourselves only to the parables, Matthew 13, Jesus talks about wheat and tares in the church. Tares, the weed that looks like wheat until it's fully grown. What happens to the tares? They're bound and burned. Also Matthew 13, Jesus talks about catching fish in a great net. What happens to the bad fish? They're chucked overboard. Matthew 25, Jesus talks about wise and foolish virgins. What happens to the foolish ones? They're locked out of the place where the wise are gathered together rejoicing and celebrating. Same chapter, Jesus talks about the unprofitable servant. What happens to the unprofitable servant? Cast into outer darkness. Same chapter, Jesus talks about sheep and goats. The sheep enter the kingdom of God and enjoy eternal life. The goats are relegated to the place prepared for Satan and his angels and endure eternal punishment. I could keep going, but you see the point. To which the universalist says, but those are, those are parables. And I mean, just, just like we imagine Paul debating his imaginary Jewish friend, we can imagine ourselves debating an imaginary universalist. Those are just parables. Jesus is trying to make a point about, about, about what it would have been like if he had never come. It's a hypothetical. Except, except no. Flip over to Matthew 13 if you want to put eyes on this. We don't have it on a slide. We can be confident saying, no, it's not a hypothetical, because more than once Jesus interprets his own parables and says, no, actually, they mean pretty much what they sound like. Matthew 13, the disciples go to Christ. Matthew 13, verse 37, explain to us the parable of the tares. And Jesus says to them, well, this is easy. He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire in the parable, so it will be in reality at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they'll gather out of his kingdom all the things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the very real furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth forever, and the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, because this is really important." If we had more time, the universalists would raise more questions. The Bible would have more answers. But I think you see the point. The point is John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, believing in me, repenting before me, trusting in me, accepting forgiveness from me. 
That is the consistent teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And this shouldn't be hard. Because this makes sense to us in every other area of our lives. We say salvation is a free gift of God. We know how gifts work. We understand if we want the value of a gift, we have to accept it. Used to be if someone sent you a gift, you had to sign for it. Now they just chuck it on your front porch. But even today, if you want the gift, you still have to do something. You need to pick it up and take it in or the porch pirates are going to come and get it. The point is a gift isn't a gift until it's received. You can purchase it, send it, but it's not going to bless me or delight me or change my life in any way until I'm holding it in my hand. Until I receive it, until I accept it, until I open it, it's not a gift, it's just a box. You've heard, perhaps, the story of George Wilson. I've shared it, but I don't think I've shared it for like 10 years. Because for a while I was sharing it too often. But, it, but at one point I had, I had a, a box of tracks with this story. Because it really made an impact on me. If you haven't heard the story, George Wilson was a career criminal in the 1830s. And he was convicted on six counts of obstruction, robbing the U.S. mail, threatening a mail carrier, assaulting a mail carrier. And, and the violent assault carried with it the death penalty. Interfering with the U.S. mail was a big deal in the 1800s. Except that this happened at a time where, where public sentiment was rising against the death penalty, and President Andrew Jackson gave in to public pressure. He pardons George Wilson for the assault conviction. And Wilson declines the pardon. District Court has no idea what to do. Eventually, the case gets kicked up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rules a pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws. They go on to say a pardon is a deed, the validity, the, the, the validity of, of which delivery is essential. And delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And if it be rejected, we have discovered no power of a court to force it on him. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote, The value of a pardon must be determined by the receiver. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives it. Therefore, George Wilson must die. And he was executed for his crime. You, you see the parallel, I'm confident. A pardon is an act of grace. A deed for which delivery is essential. Without delivery, the deed is invalid. And without acceptance, there's no delivery. This makes sense to us in every other aspect of our lives. Why does the universalist resist it so? Why do they find such widespread acceptance in the church for their unbiblical beliefs when, when they so clearly contradict the plain teaching of Jesus? It's the same reason Paul had to write this letter to Rome, this section of the letter. It's the same reason the Jews in Rome rejected the necessity of the gospel for them, pride. In our pride, we don't want to change. We don't want to believe we need to change. We don't want to surrender to God and ask him for change, even if our eternal life is at stake. 
We so desperately want to stay the people that we are. So we grope around for a belief or a philosophy or a doctrine that will tell us we get to. That God will love us the way that we are and leave us the way that we are. That we're okay just the way that we are. We'll get to heaven just fine the way we are. Except we won't. We won't. If we want to get to heaven, we've got to listen to what Paul says. And if we want to be used of God to help others get to heaven, we need to listen to what Paul says. It's the final point on our outline. Paul's writing to the first century church in Rome. And in the last few minutes, we've extended his exhortation to the 21st century church in America. But as we close this morning... Let's turn the spotlight on ourselves. Because it's easy to talk about the church out there. But let's ask ourselves what Paul would perhaps say to us. How this passage might read if it were addressed to us at Calvary, Wichita. I took a stab at rewriting the passage. I'm not sure that I quite hit it. But try this with me. Rewind to verses. 17. Indeed, you are called Christians. You read the Bible and sing worship songs. Verse 18, you know God's will about marriage and family and wokeness and abortion. You know his will about those things because you've read the Bible. Verse 19, you don't seem to have a problem telling unbelievers how they should live teaching the world about right and wrong because, verse 20, you have the Bible. And the Bible teaches us right from wrong. But have we learned, verse 21, the lessons, the love we're so quick to preach to others? Verse 21, we preach that a man should not steal, but do we steal from our job, steal from the government, steal from the Lord, taking the blessings that he's entrusted to us and keeping them for ourselves. Verse 22, we talk about sexual sin, especially the sexual sin of the gay and trans community, but what about our sexual behavior? What about our sexual behavior outside of marriage? What about our use of pornography even being married? Verse 22, we scold people for their addiction to electronic gods. The iPods and iPhones and iTunes and iDulls. They worship. But don't we scroll and scroll and scroll ourselves and rationalize it because we say we need it? Because we use it for Jesus? Is that what we're doing? Verse 23, we tell people that we're Christians, but do we act like it? Or do we make it easy for people to reject the gospel because they look at us and they don't see anything different from when they look at anyone else? Verse 25, calling ourselves Christ followers is great if we actually follow Christ. But if we don't, if we don't, aren't we doing more harm than good? If we're not preaching the gospel, if we're not living the gospel, we're confusing people about the gospel. Maybe we need to go back and ask if we're believing the gospel. There are, verse 26, people who might not act the way we think Christians ought to act. They might act 
differently, dress differently, behave differently, vote differently, believe different things about guns or vaccines or masks or all kinds of things. But if they trust Jesus for salvation, they're as Christian as we are. And there might come a day, verse 27, when that Christian who doesn't believe us, who doesn't agree with us about how Christians are supposed to think or act or vote, might ask us, are we loving the way Jesus taught us to love? The way the Father has called us to love, the way the Holy Spirit has anointed us to love. Because verse 28, following Christ isn't about looking around at what other Christians are doing, trying to figure out what is normal, what is accepted, what we need to do to fit in. Being a Christ follower, verse 29, is about following Christ. Letting him change our hearts. Letting him teach us to surrender to his spirit. Choosing to live for him alone and seeking to hear his voice say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, let our ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let our hearts receive what your Spirit says to this church. Stir us. Embolden us. Burden us to believe you, to accept you, to embrace your call on our lives, to live for you and you alone.